Welcome to Building the Oracle, a podcast about two dudes building a publishing house and film studio from the ground up with nothing more than some edible flowers and a wrench. I'm your host, Jay Swanson. And I'm Richard Bilkey. And before we get into today's episode, you might notice a little something different already. Yeah, a little something about uh, sound quality, but also my, th- my throat. <laughs> Richard and I are unfortunately separated by social distancing and a nationwide lockdown here in France that has been going on for almost two weeks. Yeah, I do miss a lot of things about the way the world was a couple of weeks ago, um, most notably childcare, I think. <laughs> yeah, that, that I was going to say as do we all, but that's actually not a problem that I'm running into that yet, thankfully. We were fortunate. And, and I, I refer back to you, my throat once again. Um, I've been shouting at my kids to stop running down the hallway um, on, on behest of my downstairs neighbor. Hopefully it's a little bit of short-term shouting to uh, prevent some longer-term shouting matches down the road. We were fortunate to record with today's guest, Michelle Quo, a couple months ago before the lockdown began. She was our last guest to record in the old office, so just the intro and outro today are being recorded from quarantine. Uh, Michelle is an immigration lawyer and professor at the American University of Paris, as well as our editor, Zach's teacher. While she's written exclusively in the nonfiction world, there was a lot of crossover in talking about the power of taking on the viewpoints of others through storytelling. Yeah, Michelle, is um, she's a very compelling proponent for the power of storytelling, um, but she also offers a very real lesson in how stories can fail if a reader cannot find a way into the story. So uh, including a diverse range of viewpoints into your story doesn't just make it a more interesting read, it makes it more accessible to a broader audience. And that's true whether you're an author or a teacher or any kind of storyteller. I thought it was really interesting. It's a, it's a wonderful conversation. And of course, before we dive into that, we'd just like to take a moment to encourage you, as if you haven't heard enough of this already, to wash your hands and keep your distance from other people for the foreseeable future. Please, hopefully you're listening to this from a glorious and worry-free future, but if you're listening to it when it comes out, please be safe out there. Yeah, wash your dang hands. Come on, get on it. <laughs> And also, we have two new super patrons with us uh, starting off the week with uh, Mr. and Mrs. DJ Poser and founder of Timeless Capital. Want to make sure to throw those guys in there guys. right off the bat. And with that, let's hear from one of our inspirational hometown teachers, Michelle Quo. Welcome to Building the Oracle. I'm your host, Jay Swanson. And today I'm joined by the author and professor of law, Michelle Quo. Hi, it's so great to be here. It's great to have you. Michelle grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, which, in one of life's fun coincidences, is where a young Richard Bilkey spent a year abroad in America attending Gull Lake Middle School. A long time ago. Wow, I know where Gull Lake is. (laughs) Small world. I was kind of actually secretly hoping that you went to the same middle school and didn't realize that you guys... That, that would have been very funny. <laughs> that would have been amazing. <laughs> she would go on to graduate from Harvard with a degree in social studies and gender studies before joining Teach for America and moving to Helena, Arkansas, located in the heart of the Mississippi Delta. It was here that she would teach in an alternative school for kids expelled from other schools and meet a young man named Patrick, the central figure of her book, Reading with Patrick. After graduating from Harvard Law School, Michelle worked for a variety of nonprofits as an immigration lawyer in the U.S. and currently teaches history and law here at AUP the American University of Paris. You can find her TED Talk online detailing what she learned from working along the Mississippi, and she comes highly recommended to us by our own producer and one of her own industrious students, Zach Egan. Extremely industrious. Extremely industrious. He has a microphone if he feels like defending himself at any point. We're really grateful (laughs) to have her here on the show. Michelle, welcome to Building the Oracle. It's such a joy to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. No, we're happy to have you. Now, first, we have to get right to the heart of the real issue at hand, which is the people really want to know. How good of a student is Zach, really? Oh, my gosh. Um, Well, I'm not saying this just because he's here. Yeah, you can pretend he's not in the room. He is... um, I'll kick him out if you need to. So earnest, so present, and he is my teaching assistant for a class he took last year, and he also told me who was on the internet today on their computer. So spy. I'm a snitch. He's oh a- no, he's a snitch. He also has the power to edit out whatever we say. So we can just we can okay. cut that down. <laughs> You're from the Midwest originally, right? Educated on the East Coast. You worked in the South. Or you volunteered in the South, really. I mean, as as just to make a distinction there, and worked in California on the West Coast. If anybody's done America, Seems like you've done America. I have done America. Although the Southwest is a place I would really love to live. But. Wouldn't we all? Yeah. <laughs> My sister's in San Diego oh. and uh, it's a glorious place. One of our starter questions then is, and I think it really applies to you, 
is, and I, we varied the research we did. So there's different levels of ignorance here. And I actually was, I stopped him from telling me the story because I wanted to hear it straight from you. How did you end up in Paris? Oh gosh, that is totally random. My husband got a job here and I am probably the only person who in the world who didn't want her husband to get a job in Paris. I was like, this is really going to affect my credit as somebody who works in like the hardest places in America. Um, can you, we please just stay there only a year? So I followed him. And when I go back to the U S I'm really embarrassed and, and try to explain to people that we don't just sip espressos and eat croissants here, that there are many different parts of Paris. Yeah. So it was, it was totally random. It was a following your partner who got a job kind of thing. Now, how long have you been here? It's been five years. Five years, that mm -hmm. one year extended a little bit. And yeah. how like how do you like being in Paris? Uh, trying to wash from your memory a little bit the recent strikes. Uh, <laughs> the strikes have been hard. Yeah, um, they've been brutal. You know, I like some parts about Paris. I like that shopping is a pleasure, whereas in the U.S. it's, um, it's kind of grotesque to shop in the U.S. Uh, just the parking lots and the shopping carts and the sense of stress. It is a tough city, though. I think you can feel like an outsider. I know people who speak French completely fluently. I've been here for 20 years and feel like an outsider. I certainly feel illegible as an Asian American. Um, people think I'm a Chinese immigrant or tourist mm. often, and um, I'm neither. I mean, I'm a Taiwanese American who speaks fluent English. So, so in some ways, I in America, I feel much less like an outsider because I can quickly invoke shared references, TV yeah. shows. But in here, I, I don't ha I can't do that to signal my feeling that I, I belong and I don't feel like I belong. So I, you know, it, I'm, I'm ambivalent about Paris, but I also, I don't know, I love the public transportation system. Do yeah. you have your child here as and well? And I have my children and I loved, the, I loved the healthcare system. My total bill for having a child was like 80 or 60 euros, yeah. you know, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, in the for Midwest, context, amazing. for anyone who's not from America, it's like at least 10 grand, isn't it? have a kid in the states oh Welcome yeah if you don't have health insurance <laughs> if you don't have health insurance so it's a very humane healthcare system and i don't take that for granted it's just a nice little perk there but you actually touched on something that we were going to ask you about anyways which in your work you highlight and remain very aware of the importance of race within a variety of contexts including your own experience moving and working within the united states which i think is it's, it comes through in your ted talk and in the way that you you write and I'm really curious to hear your thoughts that you just like you just touched on in the contrast between the United States and France in particular, because I think a lot of people don't when they think about France or Paris and like that, they, they think of it as almost like a like a magical land where racism ceases to exist. And so I'm curious to hear your thoughts there. But also, given the current global climate and what feels like the breakdown of our capacity to maintain any real discourse for longer than 25 seconds, I'm even more curious to hear about your approach to writing and communicating on those subjects at all. And uh I don't know how you how you feel like the what, where's the efficacy in that and and what what is the best way to approach it even It's a big question that matters a lot to me. I think the the promise and joy of writing something substantial, a book, a longer piece, an essay is that you can be more complex than what is on Twitter about race that uh, sometimes on on Twitter for instance and on social media we're often People are often, I'm also guilty of this, uh, people are also guilty of, of virtue, virtue signaling, of being like, I am the, I am the righteous person, I, I believe X and therefore I am good. Um, and in longer pieces of writing, one can acknowledge I am always both the victim and the perpetrator. I am, I am, I am always guilty and always, but also perhaps self-aware of, of my position. And so that's what I attempted to do with the book. I always tell people I don't think it was a trendy book to write in this time. I think it is complex. Um, it's not clear this person writing this book about an African-American, not as an African-American. It's not a trendy thing to do. It's I think it's much more easy and fashionable these days to write about one's own race than to attempt to create connections across race. It's not clear if this narrator, is she in a position of power? Yes and no. Is she an outsider? Yes and no. To, to clarify, this book is about my journey to the Mississippi Delta to teach a mostly um, African-American population as an Asian-American. 
And I was really worried when I was writing this book for a long time. It took me a really long time to write because I was like, is this going to be misinterpreted as um, a white savior story, as a privileged person is so good for helping indigent racialized other and after a while I think when you're trying to write a story you just have to silence those other voices because you can just become completely paralyzed you have to trust the generosity of your reader when you write about such sensitive topics uh, I mean certainly you know Zach Zach pushed the book at me and said you know read this and and I I read it in a weekend and oh that's just okay about it, I, I think it's an incredible book and I highly recommend everyone go and find it I'm reading with Patrick but I think you, you speak about the generosity of the readers reading it. I think one of the things is is the generosity you have in writing it um, with everybody that you describe in the book. I think you're very generous by taking time to to really think about their context. You, you're very faithful to their speech. You know, when you when you quote people, you you're very accurate with that. You're very. I think you try very hard to to make sure their own modes of speech and their own words really come through. Um, you highlight in a lot of your students who you know when you when you came to them uh and you spent time um you know trying to trying to engage with them in different ways you spent a lot of time with different formats with poetry with uh, plays with whatever could get them in you know to get them engaged with the the material and and then to obviously find their own voice and you spent a lot of time in the in the book highlighting the beauty of their own voice when they you know when they they write it in their own voice you, you some of it's just the beauty of some of the stuff they write and the way you highlight that. So I think the generosity you take and the time you take to contextualise them and also yourself, you're very honest about your own biases. You're honest through the book and your own struggle with this to, to do that. And I think that's, for me, that's that's why it succeeded for me to, to deal with some very complex relationships here and, and histories and, and, and to come out of it. I, I felt um, I learned a lot um, myself. I, I've certainly... You know, I'm from Australia and we have our own issues with, with race in Australia and, and I, I'm aware of that I have a lot of blindness, you know, and it was a book that I came out feeling like I'd, I learned a lot there. So, you know, I'm very grateful for that. To turn it back to, to France, um, because I think we feel the same way here in France, that we've, we've come here and, and we're all others in France and it's hard for us maybe to, to see the, uh, the divisions here, um, especially living in Paris, inside the Peripherique, where it is quite a monoculture here still and um so yeah maybe a little bit of the differences here what as, as an immigration lawyer here um and I'm, I'm, you're not practicing here obviously but um what have you noticed in france that's that's different to the experience in the u.s well um just to back up i thought that was so beautifully put and i i feel like what, what you said um about being aware of one's blindness and i think that is kind of the position i hope everybody can can learn from one another is how do you become more aware of, of your own blindness? How do you acknowledge it? How do you push yourself to become less blind? I it's hard. And it gets, I, I, does it get harder as we get older? Uh, yeah. What, what doesn't? Although it didn't further, things do easier. But I was going to say too, when you're talking about that, as far as both in, in respecting the voices of others, but also in silencing almost your internal projection of what you expect to be mm -hmm. critical voices, I think that's a conversation that we have as well because within the project that we're pursuing with writing, uh, you know, these fantasy and science fiction stories and wanting them to be broad, open, diverse, rich, you know, something like, but also recognizing like for me, some of my stories are, are written. One of them is very much written through a very white colonial mindset intentionally to undermine that and to show the, my own, cause I lived on a hospital ship in West Africa for a few years. And oh, so it's kind of based on my limited experience with the Congo and what I saw there and my own overcoming my own blindness and recognizing like just how incredibly blind I was to so many things. And so you're talking about that, the spheres of like the white savior story. So many stories go through a colonial lens because that's the world we've lived in for so long and we don't even think about it. One of the questions that I have, like for one, I really just appreciate the brief look into your perspective on that already, but also how do you, how do you find that balance? We've been discussing this. How do you find that balance where you want to be as, as fair and accessible and you want to do good with what it is you're creating, knowing that you're walking into the death trap of Twitter one way or the other. How do you come to that place where you have that balance and you do ignore the wrong critics and listen to the right critics? Oh God, I'm not a good person to ask. <laughs> but well, it I'm is hoping you're going to have all the answers yeah, for us. Where, why? Yeah, you're you're a teacher. You're supposed to know everything. 
<laughs> I don't know that much. Um, but it is really important to silence those inner critics. And I do talk to young writers who are really, I mean, that's why they can't write or can't finish is because they're worried about how people will respond. And it's actually helpful, though, to, to use that inner critic to your advantage to imagine how a reader would read your work. And I always, I often think about it in terms of timeline, during the first 75% of your time writing, silence all the critics. But when you begin revision, then revise as you imagine your ideal reader would read it. Like if you look at the first drafts of my book, there are so many self-flagellating pages that I just deleted. And I still think that my book could have benefited from another rigorous edit from Michelle in 2020. But I had to silence all those voices and just write. And then when I finally started the revision process, I was like, this is going to get really repetitive for a reader. A reader actually isn't going to judge me as harshly as I am. So I don't need so many self-apologetic pages. And for somebody else, that process might have been, oh, a reader is going to say that I didn't do enough self-searching. I need to now add some of those pages. So those voices do help you. They end up helping you revise but then they they keep you from creating. Mm. So creation requires silencing. Revision requires... Listening? Oh, listening. Yeah, lovely. Thank you for finishing my sentence. That's, um, the, that's the word I needed. <laughs> I'm here for you. Acti- <laughs> active listening. <laughs> active listening is what we're here for. Well, that's like, I, I guess for me, that makes perfect sense to me. Especially because like writing is such a one person show, right? Like, so you're showing up, you're writing the book. It is, it is your voice. It is your perspective. And it's all you, you have access to, even if you're writing from other people's perspectives, doing the best you can to put yourself in the shoes of other people to understand them and their motivations, which we'll talk about more a little bit later, I know. But I think that in the age of the Twitter mob and you know, if depending on which way that goes, the wind the wind shifts both directions and every which way between in that. I, I guess one of the conversations Richard and I have been having lately, especially with like my own dealing with progressively more attention online or, you know, more comments that are either just fine or asinine or whatever, but that, that kind of push you a little bit. Each one is like a little drop that pushes you a little bit farther and farther mm-hmm. and trying to get to that place where like, but I just want to make stuff. Yeah. And I just want to tell stories and I don't want to, I want to, I think that the way you put it is really good. I want to create like nobody is watching nobody cares and then revise like it's going to be on a stage. And I think that that's, that's, I think that's great advice. Yeah. You just said it beautifully. So Perfect. Well, you know, I'm an aspiring writer. <laughs> I, I, I try from time to time. Your students hold you in high regard, like Zach here. He talks about you all the time. Oh, and, that's uh, so sweet. What? I hold Zach in high regard. <laughs> Man, we're just we're just earning you brownie points left right, Zach. His face is yeah. so red. He's quite indispensable in my classroom. He's so cheerful too. That helps. I'm a bit, I can be a bit, somebody told me recently that I was grumpy and I was appalled. I was like, what? I thought I was pretending to be cheerful. <laughs> I, I'm apparently, I, do people think I'm grumpy, Zach? I've never heard that, no. Oh. <laughs> Zach's got a glint in his eye. We'll <laughs> I get it I out of him later. I thought I successfully I convinced it that I was <laughs> cheerful. Will you just like, now everybody, you know, everybody knows you're a spy now. So. <laughs> Not to turn the tables, but what's, what is your take on your students in the sense that we, like, I get this feeling both from my profession and being online and running into kids that are coming up in the generation behind me that they are generally kinder and more conscientious then definitely the kids that came before me and certainly the kids in my cohort of, of kiddom. And uh, so like, you know, we have this kind of growing sense that, okay, the generation behind us is going to save us because like we're, we we're doomed otherwise. And, um, but you've made a huge investment into students, both stateside. You made some really big sacrifices, even in your own career to stick by some of your students. And, on this side, you're investing a lot into the kids here. Like you said, you're not living in the hardship service areas that, that uh, marked your career before. You're now living in the fashion capital of the world. Where do you see that investment being best placed? And how do you feel like, do you feel like it's paying off? Do you feel like it's going to pay off? Do you have hope for the future? 
Uh, I do. I don't. I never understand why people are like this generation. I'm like, what? This this coming generation that Zach is in seems so much more socially engaged than my generation. Oh yeah, I totally agree with you. They all they they seem to educate themselves about things including climate change they're much more eager to change their consumption habits and i think my generation and the generation my my parents generation they're extremely progressive on gender they don't bat an eye my one critical thing about this generation is that i find the the cancel culture quite obnoxious i just don't think it tends to produce dialogue although i understand that it's the Zach's going to cut you off now. (laughs) (laughs) And and the second thing is um, just just their generation seems to have too much trust in the state to to regulate and to punish. You know, I'm just like, really, you want you want to give the state power to regulate this? Um, Like I'm talking about like hate speech or maybe even on like some me too stuff but anyways whatever that's a whole different conversation tricky waters for but sure but i i do feel a lot of hope um and some of the colleges i have are just just really remarkable um i took some students to volunteer at a detention center in in texas this summer and they were they were working these challenging shifts from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. an hour away from San Antonio, and they were um, helping migrants apply for asylum. And my students were so motivated and kind and curious. So I I feel like this is a generation that wants to make significant impact. They might be quick to judge people personally, but I understand also that they're also trying to be socially engaged. That's my impression. Does that align with your impression? Well, yeah, for sure. And I think that the question that at least for me too, is that on that level of investment, like how do you, when you're coming alongside these students and your, your students here, I imagine are very different than students from your past in a lot of ways, both in where they come from and levels of privilege and all of that. But I also am curious, like the investment you're putting into them, how do you best affect because it seems like story storytelling is very important to you and the power of, of a story well told and the power of reading and literacy. And uh, how is that the best way to affect change in a person and in a society? And I don't know, what are, do you, how do you feel like that investment in particular through your storytelling, your writing, and, and then encouraging others to engage in that themselves? Is that an area that you've seen real payoff? Hmm, that's interesting. That's such a good question, and I'm struggling with it because I what I'm think I'm thinking about multiple things as you ask that question. One is that it's just such a visual culture where people, and myself, I watch so much television. Students are teaching themselves things by going online on YouTube, on uh, online lectures. They they have the capacity to gather knowledge themselves. So. I feel I feel that um, what I want to say is that professors really have to step up their game. We can't be lecturing the way our professors lectured at us because students can gather, unless that lecture is beautifully crafted with as an essay is crafted. Um, students can gather the information that lecturers are lecturing themselves. So in my classroom, if I know that my lecture isn't beautifully crafted one that embeds story within a a historical social context, one that gracefully uses a number of visual slides to bring home the message. I try to focus on creating an interactive place because students are just, they have a shorter attention spans and they want to be gripped. And I guess all of this is my way to say that um, students have, I think, because we're, um, uh, we're so immersed in, in visual content in storytelling through television, they have a they have a much quicker judgment of whether somebody's telling a good story. I guess that's what I want to say. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, that's very interesting. And I think the things that I think about as you're talking there are one, the writing of television. You know, the the stories that people are telling now through television is incredible. I think that's improved a lot. I mean, the quality that's out there is is incredible. And I listen to a lot of podcasts, and that the generation of of people coming through and telling these stories through podcasts through through YouTube. I mean, these guys tell incredible stories themselves. And if people think that, that you know, there's a problem with literacy in, in the generation coming behind us, so they just have to listen to some of the work that's that's coming out from them. Um, they, yeah, they, there's incredible things happening there. They're very well-spoken, very well-written. 
yeah. our generation. Um, Absolutely. Uh, it was interesting, I think, we're talking about sort of you having to go multi-format here. And again, I mentioned before the way that in in Helena you had to really try a whole lot of different formats. And it was actually a play, I think, in the book you mm-hmm. mentioned that it was when you, uh, you, you, you tried to look at novels and traditional sort of books that were put in front of students. And it was a play that actually got um, the most response from your students and, and it was because I'm not sure whether it was because it was a play uh, mm. or whether it was because the content of the play was they resonated with the characters or, or, or the combination of the, ba- the both that the play was a <laughs> the both I think I <laughs> took a, a Frenchism there but whether or not it was just the the direct speech of the play but the fact that you experimented with different mediums and and there are so many different ways to communicate stories in the world and, and there are ever increasing number of ways and mm. and the fact that you take the time to to think about that when you're when you're trying to educate someone when you're trying to help someone because mm. people learn in different ways. Um, Patrick, for example, when you went back and and started to uh, read with him in in prison, it was the the letters that he started to write that really found his voice. Mm. Um, so I'm interested in that as well. Um, it's kind of a question of like, at least when, when I'm listening to you yeah. talk about it, it makes me think of like we're in this era now where we and when you talk about lectures it lines up very well with we look back to see how we were communicated with and how humans communicated to each other and what we defined as something like literacy in the past. And we're so inundated with something like story that we know within moments if it's going to be a story well told or not. And I wonder if what we're, what Richard's kind of getting to and what we're struggling with as a society and as storytellers is finding our own way to communicate stories in the best and most gripping way in a world where we were raised to believe, well, these are the ways you're supposed to do it that no longer really connect with the average person. And does that even matter if it doesn't connect with them anymore? I know. And I, yeah, you, Jay and Richard, this is so helpful. I'm just trying <laughs> to figure this out out loud. Like part of me just wants to hold on to this, to this truth that nothing will replace the written word and, no, no, please tell us that because we're, <laughs> we're starting a publishing house. I'm, like, I'm saying, well, that, screw the books. We're just going to make more YouTube videos. I know. I mean, what? What? I mean, what can replace that feeling when you're ten and you're under the covers and you just want to keep reading and you're to- and totally the mesmerized? Feeling when you're ten these days and you just you've got the covers over in your head and you're you watching YouTube. I know. And, yeah. and and there's no question that I'm much I'm much more focused and alive when I'm reading than when I'm watching television. I'm somebody who loves television too much I, I get addicted I could watch whole seasons two seasons of one thing one day I mean that you know it's not something I'm happy about so there's no question that there are other forms of media media are more passive for me but I think what you're both getting at is what do these other forms offer us how do they affect somebody's love for the written word can they deepen your love for the written word and then there's this whole other question which i realize as you're talking which is the original question you asked me is how do you get students to connect to the media they want that mm. they belong to like i want my students to feel to discover the form of communication that that speaks to them that that makes them want to sing you know whatever that be for patrick it was letters for some student it might be visual um, for another student it might be a traditional essay um, and that I haven't figured out in the classroom that I haven't figured out how to give them multiple options and I teach them how to do option probably because I'm a total dim-witted idiot no, with, with so visual and, and, and podcast stuff you know but I love all all the different forms of storytelling that are being taught and then there's a the last question which is which is whether all of this accessible form of storytelling is, is, is making it more difficult for people to connect to difficult texts, mm. texts that require difficulty. Yeah. You know, um, a science fiction novel that has a, an unreliable narrator or different points of view or a thick historical context uh, with, with more, more abstract concepts. You know, or my friends who teach literature think that don't have such a rosy view as me. They think students are getting dumber. So, um, I mean, it's helpful that I teach something that I, I think feels naturally socially urgent. I think literature professors now have to help students slow down and grapple with complexity and be like, things can be ambivalent. Not everything needs to have a strict moral or social message, you know? Um, so... Yeah, I'm going to stop talking. No, that was yeah. great. I th- yeah. Th- these are questions that are really, really important that I, th- I think are at their, at their 
foundation are ultimately really disturbing because they they threaten the status quo of things that we love through storytelling, for example. And the value of books is that it does engage the reader in a way that visual content can't because you're creating the visuals yourself and you're creating the world and you're seeing things happen. And there's an engagement with the text that happens as you read that really is part of the discipline of reading is learning to give that energy to the process. And then what you get back is the, you reap a reward for that investment, which can, I think actually happen to a degree in like video games where I think that video games now are one of the higher forms of storytelling available, but they, they don't allow for, it's different. You have in a different way where the visual side is done for you, but now you have moral questions to answer for yourself and decisions to make and consequences to reap that also have their, um, a different level of emotional payoff and, and impact. And so investigating and diving into that and finding the value in that, I guess I, I can see where that, that becomes a, a struggle, especially as somebody who has to teach literature, where you have people that have never been taught to put in that effort and never it's like teaching someone to exercise and get that the benefit from it if you don't have somebody walking in the room who's already got that basic level of understanding that we stretch we warm up we run for a little bit it sucks for the first five minutes and then it's great after that then you're really having to work with just pushing people to get past that first five minutes and that's that's not what most literary professors I'm sure would like to spend their time doing when they wanted, they want to spend their time running and then talking about the run with their students. And so there, that raises even bigger questions as to like, do we, do you continue to pursue this Avenue or do you like, what is the end goal when you're trying to, and that's kind of what that original question was circling around was what is the point of these books? What is the point of these stories? What is the point of engaging in any form of literacy, is it to elevate the person and in what ways? And does that mean that there is another way to get to that that maybe speaks to that person more? Like you said, to get them to sing. And what are we losing by giving up something else like more complex texts that require somebody to really sit and engage and, and put in some effort? Yeah. Well, you think I'll just add to that as well. Uh-huh. Just to swing back on something you said about early on about the fact that you, you like writing in longer form because it gives you that chance when we're talking about writing about race um the novel uh, essays that longer form give you that chance to um to delve into that complexity or to to explore that in a way that twitter can't and and a lot of other things can't so i mean i would argue that and as i said as a book you know book person myself and a publisher and someone loves novels and the longer the better i certainly agree that I, i think that that it's important that we that those forms of literature are still available to us. It's just that we need to find a way that um, that they coexist alongside these other forms, which are going to be out there. Um, and as a teacher, you know, you, you say other literary professors, and uh, I hope you haven't, uh, you know, put Let's in spill the tea. Yeah, yeah. Names. You know, <laughs> but, 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 but you're saying, oh, students are more dumb. I mean, effectively, what that sort of says to me is that students are coming to them with a, a lower level of skill set in their particular field than they had. So they're coming out of high school with maybe lower literacy rates than they did. They might be higher in other rates because school might be focusing on other areas, but um, it means that the, you know, these literary professors are going to have, having to sort of go back a little bit and, and retrain a bit, which is exactly what you had to do in, in Helena. You, you had to take these students who uh, just didn't have the reading level that you thought they did when you came there. Yeah. You had to, you had to take them back a few steps and, and bring them up to speed. So Again, I'm really bad at answering questions here today. But no, but I, I, I guess what I would add here is um, the lament among literature professors appears to be, yes, that the skill set is um, not as advanced. But I think it's also, I suppose this goes back to what we were saying about our, this generation. The, the lament appears to be that students are not as patient with moral complexity, with ambivalence. Even after watching The Good Place? <laughs> Even after watching <laughs> Avengers Endgame? <laughs> Avengers Endgame. Um, maybe, I mean, maybe it's different and I don't know. I, like, I think in a piece of literature, for instance, a sexual harasser is uh, has multiple identities, not just the, the thing that he does that gets him condemned. Um, maybe having it, a hard time imagining people complexly. Right. Right. And so where do, where does that absence of imagination come from? Perhaps it's because because of 
our political situation today where um, people can only be either a perpetrator or a victim, but they can't occupy both positions, you know? Um, so I, I not, I'm not sure. I'm thinking about this out loud, but... It's a safe space to think. Yeah. Nobody, no one will ever hear this. It's <laughs> We're going to take a quick moment here to thank our patrons again, because they're the ones that are keeping us afloat during this crazy period. You may have heard in previous podcast episodes that we've advertised My Guide to Paris, along with a couple of other tips and tricks on coming to the City of Light. Unfortunately, those guide sales have evaporated because no one is coming to Paris and we're not even allowed to go out into Paris and we're already here. So if you would like to support us, if you'd like to help us to continue to make podcasts, even from quarantine, then please consider supporting the podcast today at patreon.com slash dreadgods. We've got some really fun perks, including access to the elements of our new Discord server that no one else can get. So if you want to jump on in, please join us at patreon.com slash dreadgods. We gratefully appreciate it. I was going to say dreadfully appreciate it, but that seemed a little too on the nose. Okay, and we're back. In the second half of the show, we typically like to ask for advice from our from our guests uh, on our own project, but uh, I think we're having a really interesting conversation. So We're going to um, take it. We're, we need legal advice. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... Um, but yeah, I, I'm really enjoying this conversation from Me too. Uh, as we're going. Yeah. So, but I do want to turn a little bit to to our project slightly. Um, so the business we're building is it's built around stories, um, but in our case, it's it's fantasy and science fiction that Jay's been writing. Uh, and many people, I guess, disregard sci-fi and fantasy as being escapist entertainment. But I always say, you know, some of the most influential and culturally significant. Uh, stories that that we keep retelling and and um, that we keep reading and retelling ourselves are actually fantasy and science fiction. I'm thinking of uh, fa- you know Frankenstein classics like Frankenstein, The Wizard of Oz, 1984, and of course there's our current obsession with superheroes and these sort of things. So and also um, you and know for Patrick, mm. the what, yeah, yeah, um, for Patrick, one of the ones you binged recently. Oh, totally, <laughs> yeah. Obsessed. I haven't done it yet, but yeah. the, I'll get to it. The Boys is where I'm at right now. All so. right, yep. Yep, superheroes. Yep. Um, for Patrick, reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was a real breakthrough moment for his reading his reading life. And clearly that idea of escaping into worlds like Narnia is is very central to the appeal of fantasy and science fiction. Like I myself, I remember reading that and just checking the back of my wardrobe and I think a lot of my, my first stories were very much portal fantasies mm. based off Narnia. But... Um, but yeah, I sca- I, when I open the closet, I always I always think, what's what's behind that closet? Yeah. Is that, uh, it's yeah, funny because for me, growing up, I thought that I was on TV like Truman. So <laughs> <laughs> still escapism, I guess. Yeah, still still paranoid. Yeah, um, self-important and yet yeah. super paranoid. <laughs> but yeah, but that that escapism doesn't explain alone the power of, of science fiction and fantasy to um, to sort of inspire us and to persist in our culture. So I wonder if you had any thoughts about about genre, about science fiction fantasy in particular. That's, that's what we're writing in it. And whether or not you think that there's something particular about science fiction fantasy and, and that genre that, that makes that, um, that, that allows it to uh, say something powerful about the human condition or about society, or whether you think that, that what's really going on is that there are underlying rules about storytelling, that there's an underlying power in storytelling, that it, it doesn't really matter which frame, which genre frame you put it in. It's just if, if it's a story well told, the frame is, is irrelevant. Um, well, I, so, so in, in the book, um, Patrick reads the line, which in the wardrobe and loves it. And what's so striking about this to me is how unlikely and idiosyncratic it is that he would love this book. This, um, it's funny. I've taught in prison and one of the big mistakes I think a teacher in prison can make is to make the required reading about people in prison. Most students in prison don't want to read sad stories of people in prison. Obviously, there are exceptions to it. Maybe you want to read like Malcolm X because he writes about 
because that's one element of the narrative, teaching himself how to read beginning with A, artwork, the dictionary. It's incredibly inspiring. Sometimes liberation narratives are inspiring. But um, the general realization is that people tend to want to discover worlds outside of themselves. And I don't like the how people talk about fantasy and science fiction as escapist. I think they... The desire to enter a different world is 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 so human, um, and every person wants a, a relief from the pressures of his world. But it doesn't mean that when he went, enters the other world that he's seeking to flee. I think he's seeking to make sense of his own world and to understand what the constraints are. So Patrick reads Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe after rejecting several other books that I've chosen, including the things they carried. He d- Patrick doesn't want to read about fighting, killing, blood, because it triggers traumatic memories of having been bullied and having committed this crime of killing another person. And I think the book, I mean, who, who knows? It, it's It's so private why a person is moved by the book that he loves but my sense of why he was captivated by the book was because of reasons both particular to fantasy and broader than that so the book is about four kids he has three siblings um the book has a character who he says abandons his own siblings and is tricked by the witch he feels that he's abandoned his siblings and was um that's Edmund. Duped. Yeah. Um, yeah, Edmund. But Turkish Delight. The Turkish <laughs> Delight, yes. And then particular fantasy. I mean, I don't know. You guys you guys know this better than me. How, what would you define as fantasy? That's a question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would tell Reddit forum on that. Fantasy, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But that's what, I what mean, makes that's Narnia and fa- a fantasy? I think most people would point to the the fact that it's another world. It's a it's it's you There's know fantastic. Magic. There are fantastic, fantastic creatures. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean the lines blur, and um, you know that. I mean, this is a huge debate going Genre on. Genre is a sales tactic. So yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Effectively, what's fantasy is 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 what gets put on the the fantasy shelf in a bookshop, and you know <laughs> what, what yeah. you know when you look up, you know, for in real world and in publishing terms, it's what where does this book where do you think this book's going to sell best? Um, mm. Will it sell best out of the fantasy or is it going to sell best on the literary? Mm. And this is where Margaret Atwood has her thing. She she knows that she'll sell better out of the literary section than out of the, the fantasy, you know, the, the science fiction section, mm. so she argues for that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, they're blurred lines. Um, you know, personally, I feel that, that by being able to sort of change one parameter in a world or, or several parameters in the world, um, it, it lets... I think that escape is part of it. I think that being able to take out the 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 politics and the um the stereotypes of, of our own world so that it looks on the surface it looks different but really these books are about our own world they're about you know what it is to be human what it is to live in society and have relationships and and strive for a better world or you know these are these are universal themes it's just that in fantasy you get to strip away the the um uh all the stuff that that we currently you know if, if we existing were to, artifice yeah if we were to put you know, line the witch in the wardrobe, uh, and put it into the current context and call you know, uh, pick your political uh, demon as as the the you know the witch and you know, do these things. Suddenly, people bring into it their own ideas of who's right and who's wrong, and mm. and they so you know you just can't tell that underlying story, and yeah, it clouds the actual the message that's getting through there. Um, so that's where I think the power of fantasy is, but that's just me. It's a silly debate when people, when there's that, when somebody writes an article about how fantasy or science fiction is, they're downplaying or poo-pooing it. It's one of those things that I feel like just is either because they're trying to stir up controversy and get the attention for it, or because they are just showing a level of disconnect and and it's, there's, we, we all suffer from that to some degree when you look at different genres. We've talked about this a little bit before, but you look at a genre and you poo-poo it for like romance. We've talked about how like people look down on it, but it's this, it's just this monstrous industry that actually does some incredible and some brave things and offers a lot to its readership um, that, that gets kind of downplayed because it's, it plays to its margins. Yeah. That's actually a really interesting point because, 
you know, romance, for example, is a genre that that has very strict guidelines about it. If you want to, if you want to write a romance novel, you can apply to Mills and Boone. I don't know if they still do this, but there was a kit. They would send you a kit how to write a romance novel, and it had how to plot it, how to name your alpha male, and all these sort of things. It's a structure, and poetry does the same thing. Uh, you know, to write a haiku, which you did with your students, um, you had the I am structure that you gave to your students to write poetry with and, and sometimes having that structure and, and everyone knowing what the structure is it allows you to actually uh there's there's a freedom in having you know okay i don't have to worry about the structure i just do this and, and you can fill that with, with so many more things mm. so um yeah i guess i just don't i guess i yeah i totally agree with everything you said i i don't even i don't quite understand what the distinction between fantasy and other genres is i just you know, and when you're a teacher and you're teaching students, you, I think it's really important, and I tell teachers this a lot who teach middle school, do not be snobby about what books students yeah. could be reading. I mean, everything is gold if they like it, you know. Um, but for me personally, I have such fond memories of the first month when I just I just gave birth in September. Uh, I listened to the audio, the, new, the audiobook for the new Philip Pullman, and it kept me... It kept me going in those those sleepless nights. It was so comforting, and the themes he was dealing with were themes that we all struggle with about you know what are the dangers of religion, what are the dangers of secularism, of, of rigid philosophy. They didn't seem to me. The question for me was: Is this is this a fantasy novel or not a fantasy novel? What a stupid question! It's like who cares? The question for me is like. What does this book want us to think about? Who who are the heroes, and why should they be our heroes? What can they teach to us? Uh, you know, and I think, I think that's why Patrick loved the book. I mean, uh, he wanted he wanted Edmund to to turn out. He wanted Edmund to be re redeemed. You know, um, because it meant if Edmund could be redeemed, then it meant he could be redeemed. It's um, a soul filling lesson, you know. And it's a, actually yeah. it's a great lesson for writers as well, um, because Edmund's not the hero of that book. Um, you know, it's really told through Lucy's mm -hmm. point of view. But but C.S. Lewis put motivations. He 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 really thought about all those characters, and and who knows which yeah. characters your readers are going to connect with. Mm -hmm. You were surprised that he connected with Edmund. Um, uh, but a real lesson for writers to really imbue all their characters with with different motivations mm -hmm. and. Uh, you know, we talk a lot. We've been talking about diversity, I guess, in in writing, and um, yeah. And so that's yeah, it's really powerful, yeah. and, that, and that's beyond just fantasy. That's that's I yeah. think all, all good writing does that. I suppose there is there is something particular about fantasy that I love and that Patrick loved, though I should say, even as we try to demolish the <laughs> distinctions, <laughs> the it is. I mean, don't we? I mean, don't we all want to fly? I mean, I mean, it's just don't, I mean, who doesn't love a magical beast? You know, yeah. I mean, these are these are just such I think such fundamental desires. There are things we dream about. There are things that are part of our unconscious. And I personally just I know understand that everybody loves that. And there is something about a social realist novel which I love. I love Dickens. I love The Wire. But no one flies. Nobody. And Not in a pleasant they, way. At least. <laughs> they reflect. Um, I mean, when I tried to show Patrick a Walter Jean Myers novel, which is very much about, you know, a poor, disenfranchised neighborhood, he's like, I he said to me, I already know about all that. Why would I want to read about it? Right, and yeah. so somebody who does didn't grow up with that might want to read about it to educate themselves. But for Patrick, he wanted to enter. He already he said, I already knew about that. You know, um, that's why I stopped reading bikes about strikes. <laughs> Last month I couldn't handle it anymore. It's like I already know about this. That's why I stopped reading Dexter. Direct, yeah. Go, God. <laughs> I think that one of the, the that also brings it back around, uh, and I think is a great uh, final thing to to end on, which is kind of what we were talking about earlier, which is I think the main point, especially where we're at right now in rebuilding or not even rebuilding, but like reassessing and filling out so much of the work that I've already done and trying to plan and plot for the future and wanting to engage in that way on the podcast and so forth is what is the point? Like, what are we trying to say? What are you trying to move people towards? Where do you want them to end up? And the struggle from the literary side is that people are reading less. Although I did see on, I think it was Reddit yesterday that more Americans went to libraries last year than to the movies, That's <gasps> pretty true. which is either really cool or just a sign that movies are going downhill. <laughs> <laughs> they're just, they're just there for the internet. Yeah. But 
there's, uh, you know, there's a sense that like we're still reading for sure. Independent bookstores are having their comeback, and like there's, yeah. some, there's, there, that's yes. not going away anytime soon. But there is greater and greater competition for our attention, and where I don't think that creative careers are a zero sum game in themselves, attention is a zero sum game, and there is only so much. You have limited time, limited attention, and you can only give so much to any one thing. So in creating, crafting, and sharing whatever story it is that you have to share through whatever medium it is and maybe the medium is best chosen by the action and the change you're hoping for but it's to stop and, and ask those questions like well where, where are we trying to get people and that's that's why i'm curious with your experience too of okay well you you have even if it's a limited influence you have this brief period of time this influence over individual lives and groups of lives in a classroom and or as a immigration lawyer as well mm. yeah there's a huge you there's that and so the the books you do encourage your students to read or the ways you try and get them to engage like there's you you are trying to, to get them somewhere and so that's why i'm curious too to see like to hear about what are the more effective routes to send your students along which it sounds like you're also in the process of reflecting on but i am um, i guess the most uh, as a teacher and a writer the most important thing to me f is for somebody to feel less alone and to have some hope when I guide a student towards volunteering at a detention center they when they feel more connected when they feel they can help somebody they feel less alone and more hope when somebody begins to improve his writing and have has less despair about uh, his voice his writing voice I, I feel he, he can connect to people through through the story he writes um Though, like that that is a much more humble and small goal than what it used to be in my 20s where I you know I wanted a revolution and I guess I'm somewhat um I'm, a, I'm uh, not yeah I think no I, I connection is something that's come up in nearly every podcast we've done so far I think every every author that we've talked to has talked about connection and and um connection with the readers and connection um uh, their readers have with each other and um, in some way and I, I think it's it's one of the surprises of the, the not surprises but it's one of the things that yeah it's a surprise that it's come out so often um, in these podcasts for me that's one of the things I've learned a lot and uh, I don't think it's a humble thing at all I think it's, it's saying that maybe we're relearning as a society a little bit connection and I, I'm interested as well because one of the things one of the projects we're doing here or one of the parts of the projects is we want to build a reading community around around these books um, and we want that to be a, you know, we want that community to to take the universe that's in Jay's head. We put put it out there. And we want them to, to go with it and take it in new directions and, and feel that they can can do that and that you know add to it and interpret it in their own ways. And it's something that you have been able to do certainly in in your classroom in Helena. This sent, you, you created a safe space. You created an inclusive space. And and you talk about kids who might have been virtually enemies elsewhere sitting down next to each other and reading a book in silence and 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 feeling confident enough to to share some quite private writing and uh, and their responses to to the books they read so i guess you know i see that as it's hugely important you know allowing that connection with with not just the, the work they're doing but also reading together and, and connecting with others over those works so maybe to finish because i know sorry i just added a whole lot of extra thing there how did you create that space how did you like how do you create a safe inclusive constructive space for people to read and to write and to share that uh, and to connect with each other in the, in the writing that is the heart of it trying to create a community where people feel they can make mistakes in front of each other open up in front of each other get to know one another um maybe i just already named the answer like failing in front of other people i think is really important Thinking out loud is important. You do that all the time. Um, admitting, uh, admitting one's vulnerabilities, one's back to circling back to what you said. Admitting one's blindness and and things is really important. Um, and maybe just transparently saying, "Hey, all of these things are what the space is about. It's not about proving that you've become X, but the process of 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 becoming." Um, and that was partly what I wanted to quote-unquote model that sounds obnoxious but model the book what it's like to 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 mess up 
all the time, which is what you see me doing in the book when I'm trying to connect to Patrick. I'm like, oh, I think you'll connect to Lucy, the hero. I think, um, and then also the the process of moving away and, and growing more selfish in, in one's desires, which is a process of becoming an individual, but also of acknowledging that um, w- we can't perfectly achieve our commitments to others. Giving yourself grace is really important in all of this. And I, there's just, I, yeah, to wrap up the, the thought a little bit to that idea that um, I think that we often, at least when we're sitting here talking and looking to the future and trying to build something, trying to do whatever, we often do think about others a lot and which is good. And I'm, I, I know that I can just speak for myself, I guess, part of the conversations that we were having offline today uh, you can often become a victim of your own desire to be there for other people and to help other people. And I think that extending grace to yourself and just giving yourself that the time to walk into it with people and to figure it out together instead of having to have the answers or having to know exactly how to approach it from the get-go uh, is important because otherwise you just end up beating yourself up like crazy and it doesn't help anybody if you're not if you're not able to be kind to yourself as we were talking about before as well. Uh, you're not going to be much good to anybody else in the long run. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. We really appreciate that you would brave the rainstorms of Paris to join us. Oh, no, it's such a pleasure. I feel um, like it was such a thought provoking conversation. I want to go home and think a little bit more about the stuff we talked about. Well, good. I look forward to the follow-up conversations <laughs> in the future. <laughs> so thank you so much. And thanks Zach for bringing her in. Well, that was really great. It was really nice, especially now, to listen back to that. Uh, I, I listened to it on my run to make our edits, and it, I found it to be really nice, engaging, but also encouraging uh, in its own way from the other side of everything that's happened. Yeah, it, um, what really struck me, actually, first by reading her book and then talking to her in person was her sense of humility as an author um, and as a teacher. Um, she's acutely aware that while her own viewpoint is valid and important, it is limited by her own life experiences, its biases and and blind spots. And so when she left her own community to go teach in the Mississippi Delta, um, she was really forced to realize that her assumptions about the kind of stories that her students would relate to were almost completely wrong. So all those assumptions that she had about the books that they would get into, they, they just, she was, she was off on all of those. And she had to let go of her preconceived viewpoints and listen very openly to her students to find the stories and the media that resonated with them. Um, and this wasn't as easy as it sounds. We didn't really talk about this in the, in the interview itself, but if you, if you delve into the book, you know, almost all of her students were dealing with the effects of intergenerational poverty, violence, drugs, and systemic discrimination. And in fact, um, more than that, many of those students and even her colleagues were openly discriminatory towards her as, a, as an Asian American. So... You know, Michelle's ability to accept their viewpoints uh, and engage with them on their terms rather than dig in and insist that she was right and, and that they were, you know, that it was their fault that things weren't connecting. That ability made her an effective teacher. And I think it served her really well later on navigating the issues of race and privilege and discrimination when she sat down to write that book. Um, so, yeah, reflecting on, on the episode, I think there are a few lessons in there for us um, as, as a publishing house. First, for you, Jay, as an author... I think Michelle offers a really good lesson, a real life lesson in how to write diverse characters with their own genuine voice and points of view. Um, And secondly, for our publishing house, I think the importance of truly listening to the diverse voices within our audience uh, to help ensure we're not excluding people by digging in, insisting that our viewpoint is the only valid viewpoint. Um, I think they were the two things that really bubbled to the surface for me. Yeah, I think her her perspective and her willingness to let go of her own angle on things was really, really, it was instructive and it was also encouraging because I think we often put professors and lawyers into these camps where we think of them as having pretty stringent ways of going about things. And she's obviously very flexible. And I think it made me think about other good teachers in my life and people that I've known that I admire who step in and meet people where they are and how much more effective that is when they take a step down from whatever mighty cloud they might be floating on and really just try to see the world through the eyes of the person they're talking to and how that lack of rigidity and that lack of a there's a forcefulness to some people's ways of teaching where they try to make you see the world the way they see it and adhere to the way that they believe in the way that they want you know to perpetuate their own beliefs into the world. And 
I don't think that's nearly as effective as actually stepping off your pedestal and seeing the world through someone else's eyes and understanding, oh, this is how they see it, how they understand it. And I can now see the impediments to them understanding what I want them to understand and guiding somebody through something instead of pushing them through it. So, or, or it makes you see something yourself differently. Absolutely. Well. Yeah. So I really, I really appreciated that with her. And it actually made me think in terms of like, okay, well, how do you, how do you incorporate that? Even those teaching moments and those methods into stories uh, down the line, but in telling those stories, one of the one of the most fascinating elements to the conversation, I think, is an ongoing conversation. I know between you and I, but also that came up with Steve and with others with Mike, um, has been this whole idea of medium and how do we tell the stories we want to tell? We have this fragmentation of attention. We have so many different ways of telling stories. So few like unitary or solid maybe not unitary but so many you know solid and um, universal sources of story or entertainment that now we we go out in and can find things all the way from reddit you know with steve to books with mike to podcasts with john and oliver to all these other places that you can wander and find stories and and we have this tendency to, to want to continue on with the things that we already love and we talked about that with paper and books but for us, especially being small and needing to be nimble as, as we get started back up, paper is very expensive and it removes what little margin you have very quickly just to print it and ship it, warehouse it, all those things. So I really thought that was interesting to keep circling around the question of, well, what is it that you're trying to, to get to? Where are you trying to take people? So if you're going to step down off that pedestal and you're going to try and see the world through someone's eyes, where is it that you're trying to take them? Where are you trying to guide them? And formatting the medium to that message more than I think in the past, a lot of entertainment, especially a lot of that has come from, well, actually I think in entertainment, a lot of messaging has actually been modified to fit the medium first. And, and so it's, it's a fascinating question as, as medium becomes more of a fluid thing. And for anybody out there who's not nerding out over this very niche idea, I'm sorry, but it's one of those things that like, okay, well, audio, video, visual stills, whether, whatever it is and whatever mixture you come up with, we have VR now we have, you know, so many different things. So all of that to say, how do we get to a place where we understand the message that we want to deliver so clearly that we actually see it first and then craft the medium around that second? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's, it's a really interesting conversation that we're, we're continually having around medium, but to answer that last question there, how do we get to that place? Where we understand it. One is obviously we, we, it's just us really sitting down with the material and, 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 and brainstorming it and, and, and learning that material. Um, and thinking of it from different angles. But the other side is just listening, which goes back again to Michelle's uh, conversation, is, is really listening to our audience uh, and hearing the different ways that they're actually listening to stories out there. Um, you know, they might be consuming things in a totally different way to what we expect. Um, yeah. And which really brings us to, I guess, the, the main action point for this episode is is really to amp up our listening. Um, so we've... Uh, the, the action point for last episode was to open our Discord channel um which we've done and we've been completely overwhelmed with the response so far so i'd like to thank everyone who who's jumped onto the discord and, and contributed to that community already um it's just been a wonderful thing especially in the last couple of weeks where everyone's been you know social uh, socially isolating you know that that community really for us is is exactly where we need to focus our ears the most to to really hear all the diverse not just the uh the voices in there but the, the the way people are listening to us and the way people are telling stories and hearing stories. So, you know, and, and, and again, this, this discord, this is the first place where we're going to look for beta readers and, and people to test out um, the stories that come out. So that's been a really important thing for us. And we're really, really, really just stoked with the way it's, it's gone so far. Yeah. It's been off to a good start so far. And I think that that'll be also a challenge. I know for me personally to question the ways that I've always wanted to tell certain stories especially if if we have to let go of them and i were and i'm facing that already with one of my books agnar's box having to reformat that once already from a, a serialized story that i was hoping to tell and then thinking about it again in terms of like okay we're making it into a book and anyways we can get down that's a rabbit trail that we can wander down for a really long time but <laughs> i think listening and, and really understand it goes back to understanding your audience and where they're at where they're engaging but really knowing that so that you can best serve them and give them something that they'll love and you know hopefully cherish at least for a moment which i think is 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 really really important absolutely
as I said, and, and you know, I'd like to go back to what you know she said. You and you and um, Michelle had a, a nice little moment there where it was all about you know taking the pressure off. The first time you tell that story, when you when you're writing it, take the pressure off yourself. Tell the story you want to do, and then for that second run, when you're revising, go back and and that's when you listen, and that's when you you know you revise with with everyone else in mind. So I think that's a, a pretty nice place to finish it um, this week. But um, I want to thank Michelle again for for coming in. It was a really wonderful discussion. Today's podcast was made possible by our magnanimous patrons whose contributions directly impact our work here as well as the future of the project. All the projects. They are the best. Our newest super patrons as of this recording being Timeless Founder Capital and Mr. and Mrs. DJ Poser. They joined Kevin, Karen Bates, Mystery Man, Susan French, Dixie Rose, David Guy, Figure 73, Steve, and Jane Baker. Thank you all. Building the Oracle is mixed and produced by Zach Egan, co-hosted by Richard Bilkey, mascotted proudly by his four-legged friend Gustav, and is written and hosted by yours truly. Our theme music is Glory, and our ad music is Light, both by David Cutter, who you can also find and support directly on Patreon. And our newsletter is assembled with love by our own Kate Weber. Don't forget you can support us at patreon.com slash dreadgods whenever that itch grows too strong to resist. Don't forget to rate and review Building the Oracle on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts or Gustav will lick all of your doorknobs. My name is Jay Swanson and thank you again for listening. Tune back in in two weeks for our next guest, Cameron Hurley. Until then, keep making rad shit.